Hello and welcome to The Prestige, our podcast all about films, film theory, filmmaking and the movies we love. My name's Rob, my co-host on this show is Sam and each week we talk about a particular movie, we talk about the ideas and the themes it throws up um, and our thoughts on the film. And as always, we end the show with our recommendations for sort of other movies to watch following this week's movie. As many of you know, we're in season three currently, so that means that each month we are looking at a different director and we're looking at their filmography, their themes and how they emerge through, the, through their filmography. Um, and we've started off with a director who I happen to have worked with once in my life. We are looking at Catherine Bigelow, but we'll come back to more of that later on. But always we start the show with what else you've been watching this week. So Sam, what else have you been watching since we last spoke? Well, I saw quite a recent film called Selfless, which stars Ryan Reynolds primarily and also Ben Kingsley. And it sort of collapses into a sort of ridiculous chasing, get the bad guys action film points but at other points it had some really it was a really interestingly made film it was edited in an interesting way it was it's about um the main character ben kingsley um has has cancer and dies at the very beginning of the film the first five minutes um and gets re i suppose reincarnated he gets his his consciousness translated moved into a different body, the body of the younger Ryan Reynolds. Um, and he thinks, rather naively, that these are just bodies grown in the lab. And it turns out that there is a different explanation for this, and it's about a film about Ryan Reynolds coming to terms with this. And as I said, at times it sort of devolves into a basic shoot 'em up Ryan Reynolds being an action star, but at other times it had some really interesting things to say about all the sort, sorts of themes you get in a film like, uh, well, I suppose a, a terrible film in this genre would be Johnny Mnemonic, but I suppose something futuristic like Looper, or um, what am I thinking of? What's the one with the clones? Because, oh, Never Let Me Go, that's it. Um, yeah, so it says interesting things about the worth of human life, and yeah, it was at times a very interesting take on what could be quite a tired genre. It was a very well made film in certain respects. How about you, Rob? I have watched two things this week. Um, one's an old school thing, one's a new school thing. Well, both kind of. Um, so. The A in, in the last few weeks we've seen the review, the return of Game of Thrones. I'm honestly not sure if Sam, you're a Game of Thrones watcher, um, but we're back for the latest season. Um, and whilst it has some problems, certainly the, this episode has seen some of the best on-screen warfare that I've seen in a long time. So if you haven't got into Game of Thrones, I can recommend, I recommend it all the time. You should watch it. And this week was was very very good. Secondly, which is the old school thing I've gone back to, is I've rewatched Blade Runner. Um, the sequel is coming out at some point this year, next year. I'm not entirely sure when. And it's a film that I, I go back to regularly on a regular basis, and uh, it's a big sort of touchstone when it comes to sort of movies I like and what, some of the sort of more sci-fi elements that I try to watch. Um, it's just it's great. 
Uh, name wasn't be on that. It's a great film. It's a great slice of slow punk Christmas sci-fi. It's Harrison Ford at, at it was some of his best work, um, and I don't think it's really been topped in many sort of sci-fi films since. Um, but you know, usually, if you're watching a film, listen to a podcast like this, you've probably seen Blade Runner. You don't need me talking about it. Um, so yeah, those are me too. My two Game of Thrones and Blade Runner. Great. What series of Game of Thrones are they on now? I think seven. And are they still using the books, or have they? And uh, no, they, they surpassed the books about a season or so ago. Oh right. Um, now, now we're in. Un- now, how much it will relate to the books that are coming out? Who knows? Because um, they're all been TV series. They're going to go off off piste. Uh, we shall see. Oh right. So, do you think they they have a hotline to R. R. Martin, and he's told them about what? the the way the storylines would go? My understanding is, is that he has he has because well, a lot of it is in, in the films in the books even there's prophecies and the idea of history being cyclically repeating itself and that kind of thing. A lot of parallels drawn between old history and, and and new history. So I think some of it's inescapable. It's it's the weight of the story. But I understand my thing is that a he pens and he writes the episodes for them. Right. But he has given them general direction on where story's going. But I do expect uh, there be differences. Well, this week, as Rob has already suggested, we are continuing with the work of um, a director with whom Clang Rob has worked. Um, It's Catherine Bigelow, and the latest film in this um, journey through her filmography is the 2000 film Weight of Water. This is it? Two women were discovered in the kitchen, strangled and bludgeoned with an axe. This must be the kitchen, right? She came to the island to do a story. I think the killer was in love with one of the women. So it's an act of passion. About a murder that happened long ago. I told my sister to run, but she said she was too tired. Using an axe requires intimacy. Think about how close you have to be to your victim. Weight of Water was made nine years after last week's Point Break. There was a film in between. Um, I thought this this was an interesting one to look at, and there are some very interesting things to look at. We'll get on to later in the episode. Um, The Weight of Water is an adaptation of a 1997 novel. It involves two intertwining narratives. Uh, One of these narratives is based on historical fact. So in 1873, two immigrant Norwegian women were killed on an island off the coast of New England. Catherine Bigelow's film reconstructs this narrative from the perspective of one of the people involved doing so alongside the story of a photographer played by Catherine McCormack who is attempting to explore this same story who's on a sailing trip with her famous poet husband Sean Penn and his his brother played by Josh Lucas and the brother's new girlfriend played by Liz Hurley. Uh, the two narratives involve uncovering certain secrets and they unravel in tandem over the course of the film. So, Rob, what were your thoughts? I think this film, this film has many things going for it. It has some great actors doing some great parts. It has 
some very interesting visual stylings and visual imagery trying to come together. And it's trying to sort of piece together some sort of overarching theory through these sort of dual narratives. And in many ways, it's it's more than dual narratives because you are the, the, the historical one, certainly is being told in flashback from her confession story. Mm. Um, I think my main problem with the film that it was really dull. Um, I just, I just really didn't care if anyone lived or died. Um, and this is now getting to, into spoiler warning, guys. If you haven't seen the film, this is a place to pause and go and watch a film. Um, before we talk about it, so after, spoilers from after now on. that glowing endorsement, everyone will be rushing to watch it. Well, you know, <laughs> it's at the end, at the end of, of the modern storyline. It's clear, I think, that uh, Sean Penn's character is drowned mm. in his attempt uh, to save Adelaine, um, with whom it is clear that he's clearly having some sort of affair, or had some sort of affair with. Um, and I didn't care. I didn't care if Adelaine died. I didn't care if Jean died. I didn't care if Thomas died. I would have cared if Richard died. He seemed pretty cool. Um, all the twist that the film brought to it about the fact that uh, maybe Sean Penn was sleeping with Hurley and that Marin may have actually killed her sister and her her sister-in-law herself, they were all like massively telegraph from the day one we talk often about Chekhov's gun the idea of you you leave it the mantelpiece if you put it there you've got to use it this wasn't Chekhov's gun this was Chekhov's massive neon sign pointing at the axe um, the film offered me nothing I couldn't work out from the first 15 minutes um, of the film and which is a shame because the actors are doing some good work um, mostly not everywhere um, but on the whole I, I was just I was just thoroughly bored by the whole film Sam, tell me I'm wrong. I'm I'm not going to tell you you're wrong because you didn't much take to the before trilogy. And I think there are lots of parallels here between the work of Bigelow and and some of the earlier and later work of Linklater. Um, in that this is about the unfolding of relationships and not necessarily... And there's not a lot that happens. Um, I didn't find it a problem at all that we knew from the beginning what was going to happen. We knew, I I think, and this is this is something that I think follows on from Point Break last week is that Bigelow was intending to portray the female gaze in. The character of Jean played, I thought, played very well by Catherine Cormack. Um, so you have her taking photos. You have her taking photos of the other people. She There's a suggestion that she kind of has a thing for Richard. And then also that she's jealous of her husband with Adeline. And then also that she's taking photos of, of the surroundings where the murders would have taken place. So there's sort of way in which her the the film is from her perspective um and i i thought as a result this i mean it was clear at the beginning like you said this is chekhov's great flaming bazooka it, it's not just chekhov's gun but i don't think that's the point 
I think the point is that this is a film about Jean's perspective, about seeing things from Jean's perspective in the same way that the historical narrative was about seeing certain things from Marin's perspective. And I think the fact that the sort of the course of the narrative was not particularly surprising is not especially important because it's the way it's presented that I think is important. I see what you're saying. I suppose I didn't think that the way it presented was enough to justify it. I mean, the there were some interesting visuals, certainly, but the some of it just, to me, smacked of student films. The, the black and white freeze frame for her photography just literally made me groan with its awkwardness. Yes. But I did think there were some moments of well, things like... Um, and I thought, actually, there was the, the freeze frame and the voiceover right at the beginning when she she provides exposition on what's going on and she tells you who the people are. I thought, oh, I, I cringed as well. I thought, this this is terrible. Come on, Bigelow, you're better than this. But I think the saving grace of that was there is a suggestion at the end that that same voiceover was actually a witness statement provided by Jean right at the end in in the run-up to an inquest into the death of her husband. So when she says, um, these are who the people are and we are going out to the island for this purpose, she's not nodding to the audience. This is actually something that's... It's, it's a narrative that's inside the film itself. So you're right, I, I did think there were some fairly hammy points. And I'm, I'm not going to hold this up as... I'm not going to come back at you saying, well, this, this is an amazing film, how dare you slander it. So I'm just saying that there were, there were moments where some things that could have been seen as a bit student filmmaking did actually have more relevance to the narrative. Yeah, I... I... I see what you're saying, and I say I, I, it just felt it wasn't doing anything interesting. We, we've talked about this previously with um, when I, with some of my complaints against Nolan uh, that he does do he does visual things, you know, he does a lot of visual, um, but doesn't make it good or relevant. And it felt with me that they were, they wasn't sure what they were saying with these visual choices. You had obviously the black and white flashes I mentioned earlier, but then black and white comes in. In Marin's story as well, and that well, are, are we meant to draw parallel between these two things? Mm. Because visually, you're telling me they're the same thing, but there's no narrative, there's no anything else it links to. It just felt like, well, black and white. This is a moment of of pain for so make it black and white. It didn't seem to have any any relative, and I think I think more than that to tie back to the narrative a little bit is I felt sometimes that the um, the film was trying to be really deep in its not explaining everything. Right. Um, it, the, 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 the bizarre character shifts, especially with Maron's character and Annette's character in, in the uh, historical section. And then the, the, sort of the, the, relation, the relationship sort of quadrangle between Richard Thomas, Adeline and Jean. There's clearly something going on between Richard and Jean as well as Thomas and... Adelaine, um, and it just felt like they were trying to sort of leave us with some mystery and ended up being murky. Mm. 
I, as, as I said, I'm, I'm not going to argue this as being an exemplary film, but I do think... It, I, I think that Catherine Bigelow should have made this before she made Point Break. I think she's sort of... Done herself an injustice, maybe, by coming out with this this great iconic piece of filmmaking, and then ten years later, this. Which, if this had been a first film, you would have thought, well, okay, it's a bit studenty, and mm. I'm not sure what the visuals are doing, but you know that she's getting at something here. You can see greatness in this. Whereas I think the other way around, it's kind of a bit more difficult for us to understand how she's taken a bit of a step back. Yeah, I think, I think, I think you know, we will touch on this in, in the next few weeks as well, but Catherine Bigelow has always felt to me like an actress, who, an actress, like a director who does interesting things, makes good films. Mm. You know, they're not always blockbusters, they're not always you know, for everybody, but they're, they're, they're good, they're well-made and they're interesting films. And this just felt like it just came out of a bit being a bit planned. Mm. But enough, enough of, of of my reactions. What were your reactions to it in terms of themes and ideas? Then, well, I thought there were there were a couple of interesting themes. Yeah, I've already touched on the idea of this being something of a continuation of ideas about the female gaze in Bigelow. I've also thought about this in terms of going back to events in the past and I think where this film is a success is where you get an interweaving of these as you said there are more more than two narrative strands but they're two basic narrative strands and you get in both the basic narrative strands you get harking back so in the historical narrative strand you have harking back to when the Homvelts first arrived in New England and then you also have a harking back to the episode with the brother the sexual episode that kicks everything mm. off and then you have in the contemporary strand you have harking back to the time that Thomas and Jean met or even harking back to the 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 tragedy that sparked this this famous um, text, the Madeline Papers, um, in Thomas's life. So, and that's where I thought the film worked really well was where both strands were about looking backwards. They were both about exploring things from the past, and they were both about the ways in which that past can can colour the way the present develops. And I think. This is something that that Jean foregrounds right at the beginning. She says, well, I should have known this wasn't going to work, or words to that effect, in in her voiceover at the beginning. And she knows already that past events are going to intrude on the present. Well, I, 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 I see what you're saying, and that ties back to that, the title of The Weight of Water. Um, and feeling through for you the entire of this, this story is this weight of history, as you're saying, you know, harkening back to previous events. Um, and we, we touched last week on Catherine, Catherine Bigelow's sort of style of jumping right into the narrative, you know, straight into um, Emilia Rez of, of, of the action. 
And A, here we literally have that. We jump in into um, Thomas Wagner being dragged down the street. But this is a film where the important stuff really happened before the film started. Mm-hmm. Um, and whilst that, that very made explicit in, in the in the historical section, in the modern section, it's, still, it's left a bit un, unclear. There's clearly a lot of history between these characters. Um, and you touch on a little bit with, with obviously with their son um, being ill, but there's clearly some sort of sexual history, um, or at least some sort of betrayal of sexual history between Thomas and Jean and Richard and Jean. As I said, the, 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 but there's, it's just kind of the the whole film is weighted by this history and the relationship between Marin and, sis, and, and her sister. That that you have to figure out what's going on, and it, you know the, the the excitement about the brother is kind of lead you towards it. I'm not saying it was done well. I don't think a lot of this was done was done well. But you've got to figure out what happened because the reveals don't come to later. You've got to piece together that something's going on. Mm. Yeah. And another thing that both narratives are about is I suppose the idea of a certain confusion in identity. And you have that most obviously with the sort of the blurred lines between blood relatives and between husband and wife. Mm. Um, you also have that in the child in the modern narrative I'm really interested to hear you call the child a son and the child is called Billy but the child's a daughter oh. and th- and that's that's an interesting thing that they've used this this moniker which could go either way my my understanding was I mean I'm pulling it from a story he was telling elite um Adeline about them being in hospital when he's given the Pulitzer. I'm sure he was saying he. Oh right, well, hmm. I'm, I'm happy you're wrong. Well, I'm happy you're wrong. I'm not gonna. I'm, I'm not gonna lie. At that point in this film, I was so bored I could entirely miss the fact that it was a daughter. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, I, I thought I, I did think it was. Right. Well, the the child is definitely a daughter in in the novel. I don't know whether Big Lowe's changed 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 gender. But. It's interesting that, that, that both of us have seen this film and we don't have a consensus on that. Yes, yeah. So, yeah, this is, this is in one respect, about the weight of... The weight of water. The, the weight of history, the weight of past events. But in another, mm. another, another respect, this is about how... I suppose how opinions perspectives can be different and it's not just your and my perspective on the gender of of the child this is mm. this is about i mean the the whole um historical narrative is about two conflicting opinions on what happened there's the the overwhelming decision is is against lewis wagner and then then we know what the what the result is in in fact, well, going to the the original episode, he was convicted largely on circumstantial evidence. So, um, Anita Street, who wrote the novel, seems to have sort of taken certain liberties in saying, well, actually, he was completely innocent. But it does seem, from looking at the historical record, that it, the the evidence for convicting him was quite slim. But that's something else that this this story is about. It's about different perspectives on on certain events. We talked in the past about the idea of unreliable narrators. 
Um, and I don't think we've got one of those here particularly. Um, but it's more of an incomplete narrator. Mm. Um, the, the, the idea often that a, a film, um, and we talked about this previously with, with, with The Prestige, is that sometimes films, we expect it to be an omniscient, omnipotent view on the world. We don't expect films to hide things from us. And whilst the prestige to extremes, this film does use that that, that trick a little bit. Um, and whilst this is this is much more open, the fact that there is something else going on, from from from, from day one, you're clear that Marin is lying about something. Mm. Um, and and you know, it is interesting. The film opens up with Thomas Wagner just screaming that he wasn't, he isn't, he's innocent. Um, that he wasn't, uh, he wasn't the man to be hung. No, um, but. Uh, I think that uh, I think the film kind of plays that a little bit, and the fact that you know, especially with with the historical stuff, we jump around the timeline where we end up, we see it all play out once, and then we find this this they find other documentation, and then we see it all play out a second time, from her point of view, but which was previously, but now it's a different point of view. Yes, you almost get the behind the scenes of 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 hers. It's something that you get. I mean, you see it a lot in sort of TV dramas about murder. You see it in something like Midsummer Murders or Columbo or Jonathan Creek that you only get the the true story, the the actual events as they happen from the killer's perspective or from someone who's mm. in the room. You only get that right at the very end. In the beginning, you get sort of things hidden from you. And you're right, there's not... Not something we're necessarily used to in this form in a film. But I think I think it, it does. Once I don't think it was entirely successful in that, I can appreciate that. And I think I've often gone on record saying that I do. I'd always rather a film had ambition than anything mm. else. And this film does have ambition, so it has that. Yeah. So Sam, moving on from from this week's film, do you have some recommendations for us um, for other films we could be watching? I do. Um, they're both actor related this week one is an actor who doesn't really get seen much in this film although he has quite a pivotal role and it's Kieran Hines who plays Lewis Wagner who was very good as Sam Daly in a film that wasn't particularly critically lauded but did fairly well and bears repeat viewing although not as as to the extent that I've seen it, I've seen rather too many times. And it's the Daniel Radcliffe film, The Woman in Black. And then my second actor recommendation is another actor who we haven't really talked about very much. Um, who's, I suppose, the almost the least sympathetic of the four leads. It's the writer Thomas, Sean Penn. And he was in one of my favourite films. Not a particularly uh, pleasant film to watch. Not an easy film to watch. But I have spoken before about how much I love the films of Inyarosu. And there is a sort of space of films stretching from Morris Paris through Babel to last year the, the Revenant and the Sean Penn film that I want to highlight is the 2003 film 21 Grams. How about you Rob? Uh, I've got two both actors um, recognition this time um, and firstly uh, Sarah Polly 
who played Marin, who I thought was wasn't very good in Weight of Water, but has been good elsewhere. And we've actually what we discussed this on the podcast a year or so ago, maybe even longer now. Um, and that is the 1999 film Go. Sensibly, at Christmas, it is a 90s slice of you know all in one night, young people on drugs, hijinks kind of film. Don't need a lemon. Um, it's part of my childhood, it's part of my growing up. Uh, I think she's she's very good in that um, as one one of the main characters. And it was sad to see her doing this when she just wasn't as good as I know she could be. My second recommendation is uh, Liz Hurley. Liz Hurley, who even the most generous film critic would say has been hit and miss in her career. Um, she For every, every film that she's made, there's always been one where it wasn't quite as good. Um, but I do think she's very good in another film from 1999, which is Ed TV. Deborah Rob Howard, starring Matthew McConaughey, um, Jenna Elfman, and a few other people. Uh, Liz pops up in this as a um, many a, a gold digger in many ways, uh, and uh, someone who kind of comes into Ed's life to uh, try and see him. Those who haven't seen it, because it is a little less known film, Ed TV is about a guy called Ed who predating a lot of reality TV, decides to live stream his life with a local network and how this affects his life and how he affects everything around him. It's a comedy, but in the same way that many 90s comedies are really kind of deep, dark satires of other things while still being funny. It's very much in that kind of vein. If you haven't seen it, Matthew McConaughey is good in it and uh, I'd say almost everyone is good in it. So yeah, Ed TV and Go! Right, well, we will continue with Catherine Bigelow next week. Um, in the meantime, you can get in touch with both of us on Twitter. We're at Prestige Podcast. Or you can find just me at Rob Kaiju. And just me at Life underscore Academic. And we'll see you back here next week. Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr! Arg.